Meditation. 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 Depending on thank the you. quality thank of you. my mind. You know, there's thank good days thank and you. bad days. I mean, days I feel well. like the waterfall of thoughts. And every now and then, a nice, calm, calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast, a podcast where we explore topics on Buddhist meditation and maintaining a meditation practice amidst living in a busy world. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is Discovering Abundance, Appreciation, and Gratitude. This talk was recorded in 2016 and is part of our podcast series on compassion and Tonglen practice. Is there such a thing as inner wealth, a true abundance of spirit deeper and more reliable than material wealth? This is a question we will explore throughout this episode. Today we are joined by Joseph Mauricio. Joe is a longtime student of Shambhala Buddhism, as well as an author, speaker, coach, teacher, and chaplain. As the founder of LifeWork Mindfulness-Based Coaching Services, Joe offers Buddhist and Shambhala training principles to help private and corporate clients manifest lives of dignity, sanity, and strength. If you enjoy this episode, join us for our upcoming Dharma gathering titled Remembering to Stay Human with Joe on Tuesday, November 1st at 7 p.m. Eastern. Learn more and register at shambhalanyc.org. The Meditation in the City podcast is hosted by the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York. Here's Joe to take away the discussion. We could give material things, and that's really lovely. And if anybody is moved to do that, I'll accept. But But nothing takes the place of the heart transmission, of giving your presence in your heart. And I think in a town like New York City, where there's so much wealth and so much power, you've seen it, or perhaps been the recipient of, you know, kind of material blessings without really a heart involved. And I'm afraid that there are children that are brought up that way in our culture and in our society, where they're given things, but not really the attention of the parents, not really the heart transmission or the heart quality. Now, that is an interesting thing, but I wonder how much of us are implicated in that for ourselves. In other words, are we giving ourselves heart? Or are we just getting ourselves material things to keep us shut up a little bit? You know, like paying off the kids. Yeah, you can have a bicycle, just leave me alone and stay in your room. Now, that's harsh and that's cold, but I wonder if we do that to ourselves. Well, I'll just have a few beers, and I deserve them. (laughs) It'll keep me from actually feeling my heart and connecting to myself here. Because maybe I feel a little lonely, or I feel a little frightened or overwhelmed. Those feelings of fear, being frightened and overwhelmed, are completely natural to humans. You might think you're the only one, and everybody else has it together. But I think all of us, without exception, on some level are fearful. Fearful for our own safety, or fearful of how people might perceive us. 
And maybe it's not so vain. Maybe we've developed further along a spiritual path away from reliance on material things. But we're still fearful, aren't we? Because the more awake we are, the more tenuous we understand our life is and how quickly it could all be pulled out from under us. How quickly currents can change. Things can shift. We could wake up one morning and we have an entirely different government or a different world, different family when somebody passes away. Life is always shifting and changing. And there are certain periods of that life that shift and, shift, shift and, shift and change more poignantly. And those are liminal periods like fall or spring, when there's actually a shift in our environment. So the fall comes in and we, you know, celebrate death via uh, Halloween. I'm not afraid of death. Look at me. I'm going to dress up as Walking Dead and, you know, walk around and show you I'm a zombie. I'm not afraid. Well, that's where this tradition came from, you know. Well, it came before that, very deeper, more spiritual roots. But it's been assimilated by many cultures, Day of the Dead or Halloween here, or whatever you call it, as a way of warding off our fear of change and death. We, we, we put out all the things we're afraid of and paint our face in those ways to show ourselves that we're not really frightened and to actually get candy get excited. This is really fun. It, the days are getting shorter. It's getting colder. We're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I've got a bag full of goodies here. <laughs> and I think that's the way many of us live our lives, right? <laughs> we put on some kind of a mask to prove that we're not frightened. We walk around just collecting crap that we <laughs> doesn't nourish us and show it off to everybody else about how much we got because our mask is so much better. In reality, who are we in there? Maybe somebody that's more frightened than we pretend. Thanksgiving is an amazing holiday, really, I think, for a lot of us in America and Canada on a slightly different day. But where we give thanks for the abundance that we have in this land. I'm really struggling right now with whether I should quote John Oliver or not. <laughs> Recently he said um, that the only immigrants, <laughs> that of all the immigrants throughout history, that history has been, you know, had immigrants and people coming into different lands and provoking those people to fear and defensiveness and never once have those Im immigrants really taken over and destroyed their culture except once. And we'll be celebrating that this Thursday. <laughs> the only immigrants who really ever came in <laughs> and destroyed the land they came into. And interestingly enough, we celebrate that in our great hubris as being humans, really. And I think all cultures do it. I was going to say Americans in particular. We have so much wealth, so much wealth. But there's a part of us, I think, that doesn't appreciate it, 
that doesn't feel there's enough. A part of us that doesn't just bask or enjoy or feel confident in the wealth we have, but feel like we have to defend that wealth, increase that wealth, and keep other people from sharing that wealth. That makes us wealthier. What I'm going to suggest to you today is that that kind of thinking, setting sun, we call it in Shambhala, thinking, thinking that leads really to darkness in our world and in our life, makes us feel more poverty-stricken. There are cultures that have very little, and when you go to those cultures, you're impressed, and I have done that and been impressed by how generous the people are. I have nothing. I went to a very poor, poor part of India, and which means a very poor part of the world, and there was a little town I would go, I was in a monastery nearby with Sakyamipa, my teacher. I was his chef, and that's part of what happened. I, I, I actually traded up. I went from Pema Chodron to Sakyamipa, which is amazing, because I got even less money and <laughs> less power and more work <laughs> and less time to practice. Going up this strange ladder of spirituality instead of materialism that was leading me very backwards in materialistic things and making me have to give more and more of myself with less and less recompense. It was the most profoundly important part of my life. The most profoundly important. And we were at a monastery outside of a small little village in India. It was a huge monastery, Tibetan monastery, and Namdraleng in southern India. And I would go down to the little town to pick up groceries or to do things or buy uh, actually very often cloth for the, for the various monks and things. The Sakyang was donating uh, cloth to, to make more robes for the monks, and there were many monks there. And I would go down to pick it up. And I would go to this town, and the town was very depressing. There, were, it, it, there was really nothing there, and, and all of the restaurants were, were very poor, and the food was sort of very on the street. And there was nothing aesthetically pleasing at all in the town. And everybody you met, that I met would say something at one point, go, how do you like Kushalnagar? And they would be beaming, right? And they would show me around. They would show me one thing after another that just really depressed me in a way. Until I got over that cultural shock and started realizing the transmission of heart was so much more profound than the fact that I couldn't find a hamburger, which frankly was blowing my mind. <laughs> Un unbelievable. At one point, I walked into a shop, and it was lunchtime, and they, they customarily people do prayers at that time, so they don't fear anyone there, because there's nothing to steal, so no one is afraid of theft, so the shops are open. But in fact, everybody was in the back praying, and I, I didn't know that. I just assumed that there was nobody managing the till, and I was very pressured. And I come from New York City, which makes me a bit of an <clears throat> important person to myself. And I said rather loudly, is there anyone here? 
Am I all alone? Is there anyone here that wants my American money? <laughs> I didn't say that, but you know, that was the idea. And I turned around, and there was this woman, probably 15 or 16, stunning, beautiful, and with complete presence. And she looked at me and said, Are you needing some help, sir? And I just melted. And I saw, by contrast, this person that was just trying to spend money and get something in a store and go on about my day that was so darn important, completely stopped in my tracks by someone who had been involved in prayer. And she explained that to me. My family prays during this time. I'm sorry. I felt pretty, pretty small. Thank you, I said. I wanted to give them more money which they didn't want. That, that wasn't the point. The point was the people there expressed each other heart to heart. They weren't trying to figure out what the dollar value was because there really wasn't any. They weren't trying to figure out what they can get over someone else because they all needed each other. I was there for seven months, and after that abrupt awakening, I fell in love with the place. And I can tell you honestly that it's one of the most beautiful villages I've ever been part of, very strangely. That I really fell in love with the people and they slowed me down enough to be able to fall in love with them. What I saw was that if I lose my sense of richness in myself, I can't be generous to others. And in fact, even if I'm giving to others, I'm doing it to aggrandize myself. Does that make sense? I'm doing it for a reason. I want to buy your love. I want to remind you that I bought my love. And I want a little plaque saying, this love donated <laughs> by Joe Mauricio. <laughs> a little, little plaque donated. This is what I'm giving you. right? But the idea that we could actually just give as an essential act of being human is quite profound and quite definitely Buddhist and quite specifically Shambhala Buddhist. This idea that we are actually here to help each other, that we are here to actualize our own brilliance by helping each other find our society's brilliance the sort of beauty of the connection of our heart with all the other hearts. How many people think that's a beautiful philosophy? How many think it's grossly impractical and naive? Well, come on. <laughs> How many people are lying right now? <laughs> when push comes to shove, we actually will believe that giving is not better than receiving. When push comes to shove, frequently, we will panic. And we will grasp for material things because we're frightened. And because, like, you know, rodents or some sort, we're hoarding nuts and berries. I have no idea if those are rodents that do that, but <laughs> I'm, I'm a city person. I shouldn't be talking about wildlife because you know to me wildlife is a rats but you know and my cat and my cat is extraordinarily narcissistic 
and self-centered. But it's really interesting. I'm, I'm just, I, I'm so sorry to, it's so sad to be an aging man talking about his cat. But I'm going to do it anyway. Because uh, I learned so much and it, from the animals, because you, I'm not threatened by them in the way that I am by all y'all. You know? So there's always this like, you know, what do I, <laughs> but I don't have that with my cat. Just, she's, right? I feed her. She loves me. It, it's, we're good. If I stop feeding her, it's not so good. Right? So it's all very basic exchange. But there's an interesting thing when I or my partner in particular, who it was her cat originally, have a hard time, the cat will become more needy, right? So uh, my partner, the other day her mother passed and it was very sad and we've gone through some, you know, emotional dip dips, I think, that she has. Mainly held it together very well. She's the oldest child and had a lot put on her shoulders. And she really came to the plate, so to speak, and really worked. But occasionally, she just would fall apart when alone, right? And sure enough, the cat would jump in her lap and want to be petted or brushed. And it was interesting because that actually helps. It's almost like, take care of me and forget about you right now. Does that make sense? She was threatened by the insecurity because of the pain and the way that she feels better about herself is to get food or get brushed or something. So she was doing that to make herself feel better, but it actually was pulling us out of our sadness and giving us an opportunity to give and to open our heart and feel stronger because of that. Now, the other side of that coin is kind of what the cat's doing, which is okay, but we're humans. We have a little more responsibility, I think, for the care of our world and the care of our society. We, we have more of this higher mental computational power. And because of that, we're much less happy and much more dangerous in a lot of ways. But we also have the responsibility, I think, to get over ourselves and to start to learn how to really give to our world, to really open up to our world. That maybe taking and taking and taking actually makes us feel more poverty-stricken. That as soon as we could sit up and give, that there's a sense of majesty that, that we might have. Another, for instance, is the subway. If I go to the subway, and if I'm a little bit late and a little over-caffeinated, and somebody just jumps in front of me the wrong way at the wrong time, I'm a vicious animal. I have 30 years of meditation practice, and I am not above pushing somebody out of my way and jumping on the train, and then being completely mortified that I did that. Like, that's me? That's not me. And yet, the few times that I have the presence of mind to stop and let somebody else in, and even miss a train because I wasn't going to push someone out of the way, I feel really strong for that. So when I say giving, I'm not saying necessarily that we give money if we don't have it, or we further indebt ourselves to a world that's already taking too much from us, or give things to people that aren't giving back. I'm talking about giving our awareness, giving our presence, 
giving our ability to say, go, go ahead, go first. Or do you need this? Or good morning, thank you. Our ability to actually administer life, ourselves in our life, as though this life were something we were really grateful for, that we were really proud of this moment of being awake and being human. How wonderful that would be. If you had the opportunity to almost die, you might have a moment where you're willing to bargain everything for that life back, right? And if one of the things you might think is, I'll stop complaining. Now that you're taking this from me, I wish I had it back. Imagine if you were more, more fancifully, imagine if you were jettisoned from another time, you know, if you were a Renaissance person and all of a sudden we're here, you wouldn't be thinking, oh, I'm only making 60000 a year, I'm terrible. You would be going, wow, this is amazing. You'd be so amazed. Or if you came from another planet, like if we beamed into another civilization, we'd just be so amazed by it. We'd be completely awakened by it. Even if we were poor, we'd be awake, we'd be present. There doesn't seem to be a comparative level between people's material worth or value and their appreciation of their life. In fact, it may be the opposite. If you've ever noticed on the subway, um, and I'm sorry if this speaks of a little re reverse racism or some, uh, something, but it's been my experience that if you, if you travel uptown for a long way on the subway and people are panhandling, they get more money as they go into poorer and poorer economic strata. When you get up into pretty far uptown, people just give people money for their bad rap music or their poetry or just their asking more readily because they're more in a place where they're coming from a society, more uptown, where they've lived there and their families live there. They're not just coming in from somewhere else, you know, like we are, or I am, you know, transplanted and trying to keep up with the, you know, wealthiest, you know, specter of the society. They're people that have lived there and they've fought there and they've hurt there and they've given birth there, and they've died there, and it's their world. And I think when you feel connected and grounded to your world, it's easier to be generous. And when we're generous, coming from that big, open richness of heart, it's easier to feel confident in return. When somebody gives without strings attached, when you just give, the feeling is really empowering. I believe it is. There's something really empowering in the back of our animal brain that says, wow, I'm not scurrying around for nuts here. I'm really allowing somebody else onto the train ahead of me. Or I'm spending time really listening to this person. Or I'm being present in my experience. And that feels really wealthy. I'm often thinking that if we didn't have anything, then everything would be ours, right? I think that's probably written on a calendar somewhere, a teacup.
But it's when we start accumulating that we start judging, and when we start judging, we start comparing, and when we start comparing, we find ourselves wanting, and we live in a world of want. But when we actually touch in with our basic goodness, our basic fundamental sense of richness, and open up to the world, I think that's a feeling that we really can't get from alcohol. <laughs> well, we, or you can, just at the beginning part. <laughs> and, and then you just blank out and overdo it, right? And I think it'll be the same way with those first couple of bites of turkey or tofurkey, if you are, wherever you are, when you, when you celebrate that idea that you sit down in front of a table at a banquet and there's this largesse of the universe being bestowed upon you. And there's nothing in my mind that gets the serotonin just rich in my veins as the idea of turkey and cranberry sauce and gravy and mashed potatoes and a room full of people that love each other, you know? That makes me feel warm. It makes me feel fuzzy inside. What I want to suggest is that fuzzy and that warmth is a way that I'm feeling about myself in that moment. And that it actually has nothing to do with turkey. And that if you're a vegetarian, you could still feel it. And if, in fact, if you're not lying to yourself like I just was, and you're with your family and none of you are getting along, <laughs> and it's really contentious and difficult, and this idyllic Thanksgiving is only in my mind, and we'd realize that that lovely, warm feeling that I have is the feeling that I have for being alive, not the turkey. If you really enjoy a good beer, you know, on a hot afternoon, it's not the beer. It's your ability to be present and enjoy that. If you love someone and love them deeply, it's really not them. It's your ability to be present with them that makes it magical. So it isn't the material things. Doesn't mean we can't enjoy them. But if we wear nice clothing, wouldn't it be amazing if we believed we deserved that nice closing and we weren't just wearing it to prove something to people? There's a, a talk, it's a wonderful talk, called Creating Enlightened Society by the founder of the Shambhala lineage, Trungpa Rinpoche, the father of my teacher. There's two talks. Uh, if you, One is Creating Enlightened Society and one is founding enlightened society. One is in Boston and one is in Boulder. But uh, in the Boston talk, creating enlightened society, um, Trump Rinpoche is speaking to people about how it is important for people waking up in the world to enjoy the richness of the world, to not be sequestering themselves from it or embarrassed by it, but to actually be enjoying it and through that enjoyment, sharing with others, right? Some, some sense of like empowerment of, of this beautiful world we have rather than feeling guilty about it and pulling away from it, which is, I think, the way some people think a spiritual path should be, you know? Like we should have a loincloth and a begging bowl and that's all. And that's fine. There are traditions that believe that. The symbolic tradition very much believes enjoy your life fully and completely, but share it with your world. 
And this woman got up and asked the question, and she said, I'm really sorry, I want to be spiritual, and I try, and I believe many of the teachings, but I love to shop. I just can't help myself, I love to shop. And I keep telling myself it's bad to shop, but I love to shop. <laughs> and she was rather adorable, and she was quite miffed at herself. And I don't know if she wanted some sort of punishment or clarity, but he just looked at her and he beamed and he said, I just bought this suit. <laughs> it's very expensive. <laughs> and, and he loved it. It was a beautiful suit, you know, silk suit. And he was just beaming with pride, and she got it. She started actually kind of tearing up and nodding her head, and there was this moment that it's okay to enjoy your world. It's okay to experience the richness of this life. What's problematic is if we begin to say, this is my coat. And slowly we diminish our own heart. And your coat is nicer than mine, so I don't like you, and I'm going to get an even better one. That comparative kind of thinking that erodes our confidence, that makes us feel less than good, that makes us feel like there's never enough. And then it steamrolls. There's never enough. I want more, and I want more, and I want more. And at what point does that satisfy us? At no point. And at no point, I do not believe, I could be wrong, but I would say very rarely does anybody lay on their deathbed and go, I should have got that watch. <laughs> that third car, I could have had a third car before I died. I don't think that's what we think. I think we would take back our life on any level we could have it. And if we were to come close to our own death or some great disasters in our life, we would just be fortunate to feel like we're just here to have what we have. And finally, I want to say that it said that disappointment is the chariot of the path of liberation. And altogether, Buddhist teachings, particularly Shambhala Buddhist teachings, have more to do with liberation than salvation. And salvation is fine if you need to be saved. If, if you're in dire trouble and you need something to save you, I hope that happens. If you're drowning, I hope someone saves you. But liberation is different. Liberation means I'm going to live the fullest and richest life I have and give that life to the benefit of all because that's what's truly empowering about being a human. Accepting what's here without apology and offering what we get from that for the benefit of others. Thoughts? We could pass the mic around. We record these talks. So for those of you that are new, we actually ask you to speak a question into the microphone so that people can hear it. Otherwise, it's just annoying to listen to the, the podcast or whatever. But I'm wondering if anybody has any thoughts with the holiday season coming up. This may come off as a bit trite, but what if you don't 
feel like you have anything to give. Then you, you don't. <laughs> Which is a sad place to be, right? So there's an interesting thing. It, 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 you've heard me say this, right? But, but I think uh, it's, it's almost as if the universe doesn't understand nouns. It doesn't understand the things we say we want. But it understands the verb, the energies, right? So if we say, I want love, Something out there hears, I want, and gives you more want. Does that make sense? If we believe we have love and we give ourselves love, that love will manifest, I think, for us. So if you start to begin to believe that you have wealth, even if it's this many dollars a year, stop looking at it that way and start to look at it like I have beautiful clothing, I have a roof over my head. I have things many people in the world don't have. And from this point of view, how can I share what I have mm -hmm. to make myself richer? Right. Or at least to begin to feel richer. Can you maybe say something about um, trying to be present with people who are not usually present? Um, difficult, you know family members and whatnot who don't really live in the present. And mm -hmm. that tends to have a, I tend to get triggered by it. So I'm not sure if, I guess that's pulling me out of the present as well. But um, yeah. Have you, I don't know if we discussed this ever, but have you ever come across NVC, nonviolent communication? You don't like it? I don't think it works. Oh, you don't think it works? I think it works in, with people <laughs> who are a little bit more trained and conscious and willing, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. not with my family members. And, Got it, yeah. And, <laughs> not, okay. and, and yeah. often not in other cultures, and also not in professional cultures. So there's a lot of cultures that it doesn't work in. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that. One of the, um, one of the claims that people that study NVC, and I'll unpack that for you in a second, is, is that if you do the work, other people don't have to do the work. That's the idea. Um, so the work here is to take full responsibility for how you feel and really avoid trying to change other people. Just begin to learn how to communicate what their actions are doing to you, right? or something like that. So how would that be? How, how would that not work? Well, because they don't want to hear what my feelings are. They, they don't care? Yeah. yeah. Or they just, that's not a good topic for discussion. Yeah, yeah. It's threatening, do you, I suppose. Do you feel um, any connection, and this, is not a, this won't solve the problem at all, but do you feel, as a, as a step toward a solution, do you feel like that gets affected by your personal self-worth and self-confidence? In other words, when you're feeling better about yourself, are you better able to absorb that kind of aggression? You, what kind of aggression? From your family. I don't know if it's aggression, it's just like uh, not an, an inability to be authentic and to, to talk about feelings. I see, yeah, I see. Yeah. The only thing I can tell you from the point of view of the talk here 
is what we're talking about today is working on your own personal sense of wealth and goodness. And I think if we say we need to be there to help others, that sometimes the best way to help others is to say, you're doing this and that's not cool, right? Which actually might hurt. Or, and I'm not suggesting this because I don't know your situation, but at some point, many of us have to leave certain situations. It's not be in them, you know? If you're in an abusive love relationship and you can't get away from it, it may be best to just separate out. Because if it's eroding your sense of self-worth and your self-value, you can't give to anybody else, right? Does that, does that make sense? I think a broken heart can really benefit people because it allows us to open up and see the world from the point of view of much of the world, which is brokenhearted or torn open a little bit, right? But if we don't let go of the broken heart and start to find our own richness, then we just become a country music song. <laughs> I'm kidding. Sorry, but you know what I mean. Just that whole, like, our whole identity around this person that broke my heart, you know. And that's, that's a good, valid story for a couple of weeks. Yeah. But that six months later or a year later, it's really time to move on and begin to find our own experience, you know. And I broke up with somebody, a, a few people, or they broke up with me as the Comedian Colin Quinn says, and there's a big difference there. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, you know, at some point you start to feel like, wow, I, nobody accepts me. And until we start to realize, well, why don't I accept me, you know? And then it starts to shift and change. The people you attract are different kinds of people, right? Does that, does that make sense? So Usakya Mipam says, if you gain great things in the world any great things in the world, but don't believe in your own goodness, in your own heart. It's like putting on expensive clothing and not having taken a shower. At some point, everything becomes smelly, right? It all just <laughs> becomes kind of a mess because inside we don't really think we're good enough, you know? So, any, one last question? Yeah, did you have one? Yeah, okay. This was more maybe a, ref a reflection. Of, for the lady that was just speaking, that um, about different roles maybe that we have with family. Like I, I don't know if this probably may not resonate with you at all, but um, I've got a mother that has Alzheimer's, and you know it would be cool if she was my mom, and she is still my mom, and she's pretty okay right now. But some of the times I have to be a parent, which is not the role I want to be. I want to be me, <laughs> and I don't have to be mm -hmm. that person, and I guess I'll have to be that person more. So I guess sometimes some of the difficulty is the role that we decided that we are in that situation with, a fa with family members, I think, especially. And it sometimes you have to go, well, I'm the boring person that just listens to a story again that I don't want to hear again, or I'm the person that has to help when I really want to be helped, or, or vice versa, or I have to just pretend I'm really interested in being helped right now, you know because it's going to give this person joy to give me a cup of tea again or whatever, you know what I mean? So sometimes maybe it's the roles that we have around that person that 
I guess I'm saying that maybe authenticity sometimes isn't the most helpful thing, even though I think we're trained to think that it is. Sometimes maybe play acting a little can be more helpful in a situation. I know that sounds really backwards, but sometimes play acting a little might can lighten things up and just go like, okay, I'm this person here. When I, you know, when I catch a plane back home, I don't have to be that. It, and then it feels, I guess maybe acknowledging that makes me feel less uncomfortable rather than, I, you know, I've got to be me all the time because I am me everywhere, but it's just like, you know, I don't know, that was just the thing. <laughs> it's just a difficult thing to do, you know. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. And there's two things that you said. One is we're always play-acting, really. Even when you're being you, aren't you play-acting a little bit? And before she had Alzheimer's, wouldn't you be playing some little role? Yeah, yeah. and when you were a kid, you know, and when you were younger, we're always kind of play-acting. Your ability to see beyond that and to see what she needs is really, a, a, I th would say, a sign of your own development, your own strength. When I'm doing that. When you're doing that. Right. That's right. The other thing that's really powerful about being with people that have Alzheimer's or dementia or, is how it affects our ego state, you know? I have a friend that I, her mother passed after years of Alzheimer's, and I said, I'm really sorry. And she said, I gave up on her a long time ago. She, she didn't even know who I was for the last two years. And I was thinking, well, <laughs> it doesn't mean she wasn't there. It just means that y y you were not the person you expected it to be. And that made me start to feel like maybe none of you are here. Maybe you're just things that I want you to be to make me me. Does that make sense? Does that happen in relationships? We fall in love with somebody and then we lose ourselves and them completely and have this fictitious belief in some thing that they're supposed to be and we're supposed to be and we stop knowing who we are and we stop knowing who they are. And that's a classic codependent situation. You start to become addicted to the thing itself and lose, lose the larger picture. When somebody doesn't see you for who you are anymore, it may be time to change and become something more universal, something more, less personal, right? More available. Does, does that make sense? So not to take a, a difficult situation and make it a lighter one, but the, the one thing I have direct experience with is when I broke up with in this one woman, and it was horrible. It was really difficult because we lived at Karma Chulling together. So we lived in the same building. And she started seeing another fellow in that building. And he was 15 years younger than I am and very handsome. And uh, whew, yeah, it was very hard. And it seemed like every time I turned a corner, they were there hugging. <laughs> or, or more than hugging, you know? And uh, it, it was it was amazing. And then they'd stop, and we'd all like be all uncomfortable. And <laughs> it was really, really, it was really crazy. And um, it, his name, by the way, his last name was Burke. And I don't mean to take any anonymity away, but who cares, really, right? But <laughs> Robin Trail, who was the head, uh, the, the director of Karma Chilling at the time, said, "We got to get you out of here." Right, and he and his wife at the time uh, took me under their wing, and they took me out through the woods 
to find this restaurant. And we didn't know quite where it was. And if you know Vermont, it's a, it's a network of these country roads that go back and forth. And you go in and out of these little towns, all incorporated towns, but all quite small. And there's apparently, when you two or three towns away from Karmacholing, is the town of East Burke. And then we went into <laughs> West Burke. And then we got lost and went back to East Burke. And every time you would see, <laughs> I thought you were taking me away. <laughs> and we all started laughing because that is the spiritual path. You, you try to run away and all of a sudden it's there to meet you again. Right? Wherever you go, there you are. Wherever you are, there you go. Right. We're always running back into ourselves. And I was actually turning that into my version of a like, kind of heavy metal country song. It was getting bad after a while. And all my friends were tired of listening to me. You know, you, I, They couldn't even make eye contact with me because I'd be like, anyway, did you hear what she did? You know. So <laughs> I, I was seeking therapy during this time. And he had told me, you have so many tears to cry. Please cry them here. Please get this through your system. And then about a month into it, he felt the same way all my friends did. <laughs> and he actually said to me, he said, I think you're over her now. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> and what he said was brilliant. He said, now you're crying for you. He said, now you're crying for the space that you, the identity that you created as her boyfriend. Does that make sense? And you haven't found who you are now. And the fact that I didn't know who I was made me really kind of a sinkhole to everybody around me. And that was a really wonderful thing. And then the Buddhist teachings take that almost maybe a step further and say, you don't have to fill up that empty space at all. You don't have to even make something there. You could feel lonely, and it's okay. And you could feel sad, and it's okay. And you could feel empty and not know what's happening next, and actually, it's okay. Some of the most profound moments that we'll ever have are just holding somebody's hand and not knowing what that means, and just knowing it's okay. It's okay to be human. Thank you all so much for coming, and we have a reception waiting. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, we invite you to leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. Shambhala NYC also offers a variety of meditation courses for meditators of all levels. Check out our upcoming programs at shambhalanyc.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.